Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to Policy Forum Pod, the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. I'm Martin Pierce, and I am really delighted this week to welcome back, it's been an awfully long time between drinks, uh, Professor Sharon Bessel as my co-host. Sharon is a professor here at Crawford School. She's the ANU lead on the amazing Individual Deprivation Measure Project. She's also editor of Policy Forum's In Focus Poverty section, and she's got expertise in human rights, social policy and development policy. Hello, Sharon. Hi, Martin. It's great to be back again. And how are you? Good. Very well. Excited to be here. I've missed the pod. Yeah, well, we've missed you too. Policy from Pod is, of course, produced at Crawford School, the region's leading graduate policy school. I've got a question for you, Sharon. If you could turn back the hands of time in true sure style and study a different policy area, what policy area would you study? That's a great question. Um, I studied political science. That was my undergrad major and that was um, the discipline my PhD was in. I studied philosophy, history, sociology, all of which have been fantastic in terms of providing the basis for what I'm doing now in terms of teaching and research. Um, If I had to to choose something that I would study that I didn't, I think I would throw economics into the mix. I didn't study economics, but it's always such an intellectual journey to talk to my economist colleagues around the school always enlightening and always fun. So I think I'd, I think I'd say economics. Yeah, you know, I think I would say economics too. I am constantly blown away by some of the conversations I have with the academic staff around Crawford School who, and I'm not a numbers person by any stretch of the imagination, but some of the conversations I have around Crawford School with the academic staff where they're able to take economic theory and explain it to me in a way that makes it relevant to my life and underpins why economics is so crucial in so many areas of public policy. I think it would be a really interesting thing to study. What about you, listeners? What would you like to study? Um, Why not check out the range of courses that are available through Crawford School? We've got a whole bunch of really strong, interesting policy areas that you can sink your teeth into. Go to crawford.anu.edu au forward slash study to see what postgraduate options are on offer. And while you're there, also check out our range of executive education short courses. We've got some fabulous stuff in there, which can really help you in your career. Now, before we get into tackling this week's very thorny policy problem, I want to pick your brain, Sharon. What has caught your eye in the wide world of policy over the last week? There's so much to choose from, isn't there? And I'd like to choose a a beacon of light on the horizon, but I think I'm going to have to go with a negative story rather than a positive one. Oh, so negative, Sharon. (laughs) I know, it's my cynical nature. Um, The Paladin story has caught my attention, like the attention of many others, um, along with a lot of other stories this week. 
And we're going to be talking later about issues um, around refugees and asylum seekers. And of course, that's a big part of the Paladin story. But what really got me thinking um, when I when I looked at these this enormous contract that's been awarded to this company um, are issues of government accountability, of that relationship and that increasingly blurred relationship between government and certain parts of the private sector where the accountability is, how taxpayer dollars are being spent, and for me, quite alarmingly, who it is that's being entrusted with delivering critical services or um, contributing to to policy thinking. And those issues, I think, are really worrying. And these are big numbers that we're talking about as well, right? These are huge numbers. You know, we're talking about millions and millions of dollars. Um, And as I was reading, being horrified by the Paladin saga, and I think we're going to hear more of that over coming weeks um, and certainly over coming days with Senate estimates. But um, I, I was sent by by a colleague, the fabulous Professor Susan Sell here at, um, at the ANU, um, about a, not a similar but a parallel story that came out of the Washington Post this week around a billion-dollar empire made up of mobile homes. Um, this is, these are a, a private corporations using government funds to invest in trailer homes, providing no maintenance infrastructure, very little of anything, but making a huge amount of money by providing these trailer parks as affordable housing. And, you know, this is preying off the most vulnerable. You know, this is redirecting public money into the pockets of large corporations who in this case were making billions in the US case while people's lives disintegrate and it's really making money out of human misery. Um, And I find this really deeply disturbing. So those two stories together have really vexed me this week. Yeah, and I I would like to focus on some issues of human misery in terms of something that's caught my eye. And actually, I want to draw a bit of a triangle between three stories I've seen over the last few weeks. The first was there was a piece in The Guardian on Wednesday, which looked at um, job active participants, which is, you know, the government scheme for helping job seekers find work, have seen their payments cut more than a million times in the first six months of a new compliance regime. It meant there have been something like 1.1 million suspensions between July and uh, December. Uh, And it made me think of a story earlier in the month where where there was a government review of the remote Aboriginal work for the Dole scheme, which found that 36% of participants in that think that it had made their communities worse off. Now, that's a scheme that affects... 35,000 people, 83% of whom are Indigenous. And it found, the review found that Aboriginal participants in the scheme were three times more likely to be penalised for poor attendance and were penalised more often. And the report also found a range of social problems that increased since the scheme's introduction. And the third point on the triangle I want to draw is in the UK, we've seen the introduction of the Universal Credit Social Welfare Scheme, which has been described as contributing to a quote, social calamity. In fact, the UN Rapporteur on Extreme Poverty, Philip Alston, said the benefit scheme was plunging people into misery and despair. So my question to you, Sharon, is why do so many social welfare schemes seem to be kind of punitive in approach or or have these terrible consequences for people? 
Yeah, I think it's it's such an important question, Martin, to, to think about why this happens and how we can allow this to happen. And to me, it's all around the the discourse, the kind of the, the normative discourse and the the ideas that are sitting around social policy. Um, and who's at fault? I go back to Joe Hockey's comment from some years ago where he talked about lifters and leaners and was scathing of the people that he saw as leaners, those who didn't contribute. And somehow in Australia, in the UK, in a number of other countries, we've allowed ourselves to get into this position where we blame people for their own poverty. We blame people for their social exclusion and we feel it's okay to punish them. And this is in the same context. Uh, So I was just talking about where we have so little accountability with these multi-million, in some case, billion-dollar contracts that are handed out to corporations um, in some t- in some cases, groups of individuals who are not held to account um, and who are not asked what they contribute to society. So I think it's all about the framing, and it, it reminds me of a piece that Jill Main wrote on poverty in focus. Um, again, about the UK context and children living in poverty, and she made a very strong case for reframing the way we think about poverty, people who live in poverty, so that we're not contributing to this discourse of stigma and exclusion. But um, it's it's really worrying. You know, people's lives are being destroyed by bad policy and then they're being blamed for it. And uh, you mentioned the, the UN rapporteur, Philip Alston. Uh, he gave a press conference after the work that he did in the UK and he made a comment where he said, you know, the days of people kind of sitting around on a couch drawing benefits are long gone. Um, in the US, uh, in the UK, similar in Australia, we see so many people who are working but are poor, who are working multiple jobs but still can't make ends meet. Um, and that's the kind of discourse we need to allow to emerge, not this vilification of people um, who have lost out in our system, often through no fault of their own. So there you go, listeners. Those are some of the policy issues that have caught our eye over the last week. What about you? Uh, what's caught your eye over the last week? You could let us know. All the usual channels on Twitter or Apps Policy for you can email us podcast at policyforum.net or you can join our super cool Facebook podcast gang. We are recruiting members. You can find us on Facebook. Just type Policy Forum Pod into the search bar. Bring a comfy chair, your headphones, sit down and chat with us. Tell us what you want to discuss. Get an idea about what happens behind the scenes on the podcast here. And I've had some really great conversations with members over the last week or two. So thanks to everyone who's getting involved on there. So today we want to take a look at a global issue that has proven to be a thorny one for Australian policymakers, asylum seekers and managing refugee flows. In 2018, according to the UN High Commissioner for Refugees, there were 25.4 million refugees and 3.1 million asylum seekers globally. For decades, Australia has been trying to strike a balance between its humanitarian responsibilities to protect and keeping its borders secure. Since 2001, Australia has been trying to deter refugees from coming to the country by boat by sending them to offshore processing centres. Initiated by the Howard government, refugees were redirected to nearby island nations such as Nauru and Papua New Guinea until the Rudd government abandoned the policy in 2007. But in 2013, under Julia Gillard as Prime Minister, offshore processing resumed and it was closely followed by a boat turnback policy under the Abbott government later that year. 
Even though the processing centre on Manus Island closed in October 2017, there are still around 1,600 people on Nauru and PNG in various living arrangements, according to estimates by the Refugee Council of Australia. Last week, the so-called Medivac bill passed the parliament. It was a surprising loss for the government that had opposed the legislation, and it now opens up a pathway for sick refugees and people seeking asylum to receive medical aid in Australia. Two doctors can now recommend a transfer, and the Home Affairs Minister, Peter Dutton, will then have three days to approve or deny the request. The bill has been highly politicised, with members of the Liberal Party expressing strong concerns about the safety of Australia's borders, and the Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, reopening parts of the detention compound on Christmas Island in response. Now, as always, we have got an amazing lineup of guests to discuss these issues today, Sharon. So what are the key questions that we want to tackle today, and who's going to be delivering the answers? So, keeping past and present policies in mind, and maybe even speculating forward into the future, we want to ask, does Australia have its refugee policy settings right? There's been lots of debate around that. I'm very excited about this discussion, Martin, because I'm right in the middle of teaching my global social policy course. So very appropriate. All my students, I hope, are going to be listening to this, because we have a stellar lineup of, of incredibly well-informed and thoughtful people to talk us through these issues. We have Marianne Dickey. Marianne is a visiting fellow at the ANU College of Law. She's a immigration casework advisor to Senator Larissa Waters from the Greens. She's written many articles for Policy Forum and and in other places as well, um, such as for Policy Forum, Has Australia Missed the Boat on the Global Compact on Migration? Her research interests focus on refugee law, forced migration and legal education. Our next guest is Mark Kenny. Mark is also a visiting fellow. Mark is visiting here at um, the Australian Studies Institute, again at ANU. Mark has a a very high-profile journalistic career behind him. He was Chief Correspondent and National Affairs Editor of the the Sydney Morning Herald, The Age and the Canberra Times. So multiple perspectives that Mark's bringing to these issues. And his research issues include national politics, democracy and the rise of populism. Journalism royalty we've got in the studio. It really is pretty exciting. And speaking of royalty, we have research royalty – Dr. Beanard Costa. Beanard is an Associate Professor and Deputy Director for Education at the Coral Bell School of Asia and Pacific Affairs here at ANU. Beanard was a Senior Migration and Displacement Research Specialist at UNICEF during the height of Europe's refugee emergency. And Beanard has fairly recently returned to us here at the ANU after that amazing experience of sitting right in the heart of some of those debates. She has expertise in international relations, the responsibility to protect and gender studies. So I can't wait to hear what they have to say. Yeah, really, it's a stellar lineup, and I'm very excited about bringing this conversation to you. But before we get to it, quick reminder to our listeners, please do get in contact with us. You can find us on Facebook, where we are, Policy Forum Pod. On Twitter, where we're at, Policy Forum, or email podcast at policyforum.net. And stick around after the main interview, because we're going to be going over some of your questions, comments, and some of your suggestions for future podcasts that we might want to do. But for now, let's hand over to this fantastic panel we've lined up for today. I'd very much like to welcome our guests today, Marianne Dickey. Hello, Marianne. Hello, how are you? I'm very well, Mark Kenny. 
Pleased to be here. Thank you so much for joining us. And Bina da Costa. Hi, Martin. It's fantastic to have you all here to talk about this very thorny problem for policymakers. I'd like to start it off by, you know, talking about how, you know, Australia has been widely criticised by human rights advocates that its detention of refugees in offshore detention camps is inhumane. So perhaps we can start off with you, Marion. What's your opinion? Has Australia got its refugee policy settings right? Are they fair? No, no. The short answer is no, I don't think they're fair. And there's been numerous inquiries um, and um, investigations undertaken by UNHCR, Amnesty, Senate committees that all prove it's not fair, the, particularly the offshore processing part of the uh, of the whole sovereign borders uh, regime that they've put in place. What do you think, Mark? Why has um, this whole issue proven such a thorny issue for policymakers? Well, there's no doubt that it's absolutely central to uh, any country to be uh, to be sovereign, to be in control of who comes and who goes, um, uh, to essentially uh, have the, the government in charge of its borders. For an island nation like Australia, that's actually quite a challenge, of course, and and uh, the the flow of people to Australia in irregular maritime arrivals. Uh, it's not uh, difficult to understand why some people find that a very worrying thing. So it has a lot of political um, potency as an issue, particularly then when it is revved up by by opportunist political parties and political figures. And of course, we've seen a lot of that in Australia. So in 2001, for example, when the the MV Tampa hoved into view, carrying those, uh, I think it was about 422 people who had been rescued at sea, uh, this you know whole issue suddenly was brought into very stark relief. John Howard, at the time, he'd been struggling in the polls. He was facing an election. It was, uh, according to some, he was already on the comeback, but nonetheless, the, the election was uh, by no means locked in. And uh, and, and he uttered those, uh, those famous words during that election campaign, we will decide who comes to this country and the circumstances in which they come. A lot of people seem to agree with that sentiment. And of course, right after that, only a couple of weeks really after the Tampa came in, we had the uh, the uh, the attacks in September 11 in the US, and and so there was a whole heightened atmosphere and uh, you know fear of uh, you know the hordes coming and all those sorts of uh, issues, all those ideas were sort of floating around in the ether. So it's it's not hard to see why it's a big hot button political issue. The question is, can it be again this year? Uh, given that as the government keeps telling us, it stopped the boats already. But we also saw at that time the children overboard. So we yeah. saw the beginning of the political lies that surround and the political rhetoric that they uh, are willing to use to win an election. Yeah, um, no, I, I agree. This issue. I agree. This is uh, this is an issue that has been um, absolutely leveraged politically and with devastating effect by mm. by people. And we know Pauline Hanson, for example, has uh, has made a great deal. I mean, a lot of Hanson's political power really comes from this fear of the other. This kind of um, you know. Um, uh, xenophobia, really, yes. a, a word that we famously know she didn't know the meaning of. So this has been such a politicised and such a difficult issue in Australia, but of course it's a global issue. And there have been some interesting developments within the UN recently. So just a couple of months ago in December 
2018, 152 countries signed up to the UN Global Compact on Migration. There are 23 objectives in that document, which include, for example, using accurate and anonymised data to develop evidence-based migration policy. There's an interesting idea. Um, Ensuring that migrants have proof of identity and making provisions for both full inclusion of migrants and social cohesion. Again, perhaps something that Australia hasn't been well known for doing. But Bina, to, to go to you, do you think the compact is a promising step towards better managing the flow of global refugees and perhaps to, to better supporting people who are in circumstances of need? Um, in terms of the compacts, um, because uh, the negotiations started since 2015 and what we saw in December 2015 uh, and then in 2016 after the New York Declaration, there were two agreements that were put forward. So the Migration Compact, which is which talks about the safe, orderly migration, and the Refugee Compact. So last uh, December, 10th and 11th of December, uh, in Marrakesh, the Migration Compact was signed. And as we know that Australia actually did not uh, is not a signatory of the Migration Compact, but it is now uh, involved in the Refugee Compact that is, at the moment, uh, there's a lot of negotiation happening. So one issue from Australia and from the United States that had pulled out earlier uh, was that um, uh, it's about sovereignty, that if we talk about safe, orderly migration and migrants, it takes away the uh, the um, uh, the rights of the states away from uh, uh, particular states, which is really problematic because the migration compact and the refugee compact that we are discussing at the moment these are non-binding agreements. So when they're non-binding and anyway international treaty obligations don't have to always come into Australian courts as we know that. So um, it is certainly a problem in terms of when we talk about Australia. And in terms of safe and orderly migration, but globally, we see this as a huge step forward. In the 18 months of negotiation before the migration compact was signed, there had been lots of back and forth, many, many ways in many different organizations and the advocacy bodies and migrant bodies, they have been involved. So there have been lots of negotiation uh, through every single word of the compact. So it's important to understand that those 23 objectives are all actually supported by different countries, their legal obligations, the human rights norms and regulations that we have globally and locally. So it's really important to realize that actually the migration compact is just not suddenly taking away the rights from member states, but it is actually reinforcing reinforcing the need that we need to think about migration in the safe an orderly way. Can, but can, I, just, can, can I just yep. go to that question of safe yep. and orderly migration? Because yep. I think the government does have a story to tell here. Mm-hmm. I mean, as I say, we're an island continent nation. Mm-hmm. Uh, the issue of how people get to Australia is absolutely critical. One of the key justifications this government uses for Operation Sovereign Borders, for stopping the boats, is stopping deaths at sea. So, uh, and of course, we know that John Howard used to run the line, I think there is some uh, credibility mm-hmm. to this line, that a, a country will have, uh, the, the population in Australia, for example, will accept a very generous uh, migration intake if 
the population believes that the government is in charge of it, rather than some sort of irregular approach where people are arriving on uh, on unseaworthy vessels and some are getting through. And, and you know, you mentioned about identity, for example, some of the people mm. have identity papers and some of them won't and mm. so forth. So uh, there is a question of political confidence in the overall system. And, there's a, and there is that very fundamental question about whether we have a responsibility to have policy settings right in this country that do not result forget about whether our intentions are good or not, they do not result in an enticement for people to get onto unseaworthy vessels and put their lives and their lives of their families at risk and the lives of our uh, defence forces. That's exactly what the Global Compact was trying to stop. Yes, but... Exactly what it's trying to stop. And the the response of the Australian government was to ignore Mm -hmm. the Paris Declaration and everything that went beforehand and the commitments Australia made beforehand and just say outright, oh, it ruins our borders when there's nothing in the compact that actually yes. does that. Yeah, no, I accept that. I accept that. But Australia does have a generous re- refugee intake. But the global compact on migration isn't migration about refugees. Migration is not, not no. about refugees. Okay. So it's not about this refugees. is the other problem that we have here, that these are two com- uh, compacts. There's uh, actually, they often we're talking about those, not separating, that these are different compacts we're talking about. The migration compact is very separate. And the refugee compact is where there's a lot of discussion happening now. But in terms of Australia, Australia is anyway a signatory of the 1951 Convention, which means that the Refugee Compact is not actually, which has four objectives. And at the moment, there are a lot of deliberations happening. It's not actually uh, at all in any way contradictory to what Australia is anyway set forth to do. No, no, I agree. Totally, Bina. (laughs) It's really important for us to understand that they're two different compacts and that Part of the issue the government's facing in all other visa categories is that they're not working either. They're being clogged up. Um, and it, essentially, in some ways, people are being forced to break the law to 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 claim asylum in Australia. So there's, there's sort of, you know, uh, policy and legal issues that are... Um, Overriding, and the prime minister is sweeping that aside by saying it's all—it's going to affect our well, ability that, that's to the, decide. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. That's the reductionism yeah. of yeah. politics, yeah. and it becomes particularly reductive. But he could in have won. This could have been a winner to, to 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 sign this global compact and stand up and say this compact shows it's a global thing. We're a global citizen. We respect everyone's borders. You know, it, mm. it could have been a winner. I'm really surprised any government that just slammed it aside like this. Well, I don't think, yes, a bit, but the trouble is you're talking about sort of facts. And <laughs> facts aren't particularly persuasive in a pre-election environment, as we can see with the current debate, you know, that's going on. Um, it's Even the Prime Minister says, look, it's about nuance. It's about perception. People aren't interested in, people smugglers, for example, aren't interested in facts. The government is essentially prosecuting a political case here, an electoral case, rather than a factual one. It wouldn't want to run many of these arguments in any sort of court because they don't hold up, but uh, politically they have a lot of potency. One of the issues that, that came up in, in that conversation that you were just happening, having, but often comes up in this context, is the idea of managing the flow of refugees and the, the, the orderly flow of refugees. Ben, I just wanted to ask you, you spent five months in the Rohingya camps um, quite recently looking at what's actually happening on the ground. Is there an orderly flow of refugees around the world at the moment? 
Um, if I could actually uh, go back a little bit uh, from that, Sharon, uh, when I um, joined UNICEF at, uh, as its key uh, research specialist on migration and displacement, uh, at that time the world was already talking about uh, the Europe's, Europe's crisis, so the Syrian refugee emergency. So from 2015 to 2017, and we really focused from UNICEF looking at that crisis and the global emergency, what was actually taking place in Europe. And from there, uh, the global community's um, uh, gaze have shifted to the Rohingya refugee response and the L3 uh, emergency response that you're talking about, the UN uh, in, in uh, Bangladesh. From um, August 25th of August until end of October 2017, I cannot say it was orderly at all. And uh, at that time, uh, it was completely chaotic. There was, a, in, on both sides, we had heavy presence of uh, security sector, um, and people were scared, uh, both the Rohingya and Rakhine population uh, in Myanmar, Burma. They were scared, so they were running away uh, from uh, Myanmar, So, uh, but it was really problematic on the other side in Bangladesh. But from September, when the UN um, uh, announced the emergency, L3 emer emergency response as the highest level, uh, we also saw that Bangladesh government started a civil military response there. So the military um, Bangladesh military um, was also responsible for uh, the um, population movement. So we saw that from then on, it started to become a little bit orderly, but not at all. But now if you go to the camps, you'll see there's a lot of order. Uh, as we speak, as of today, the number of Rohingya refugees in camps in Bangladesh is uh, 902,000. So that's a very large number, which also tells us that globally, South, the countries in the global South do bear the burden of population. If burden is the word I mentioned that in court, that they actually are working with a lot of refugees. And countries, the international community uh, is emphasizing the presence and the action of global South member states. So Bangladesh is one example. Then we have Jordan and Lebanon, which have the Syrian refugee uh, uh, intake, very, very large number. So we need to think about those as well in terms of when we talk about order and safe so safe order for whom? Well, who are we talking about? What kind? So is it for the global community or the global north? So there's lots of different ways we need to think about these kinds of naming and categorization of movements as crisis as well. And I think you need to also, I know I'm sort of hammering this point, but you need to also take into account uh, you know, political legitimacy of any of those policies. It is it is critical yeah. that the populations that mm -hmm. are affected by large movements of uh, refugees are supportive of that, 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 that these policies are managed well. Because if they're not, you, you end up with problems anyway. You end up mm -hmm. with all kinds of tensions and breakdowns in, in, in uh, law and order and uh, you end up with discrimination and violence and all the sorts of things we've seen happen all around the world. I mean, I was you know, particularly concerned when Angela Merkel in Germany uh, said, I think it was in 2015, um, you know, invited uh, so many refugees to her country, not because I had any problem with that. I, I you know, my heart swelled, as I think many people's did, at, at that generosity. Um, but you do wonder sometimes whether 
that kind of policy, if it gets too far out in front of the population, is just uh, sort of headed for trouble. And I think we've seen some of those tensions uh, happen. And it's, you know, it's just well, a sort of a political reality. It's interesting reality. because I was at a meeting with Angela Merkel's um, political party. So the leaders, I think, was the president of, mm-hmm. of the political party, and he, he ended the meeting by saying that you know we're known as the Christian Democrats. Unless we are Christian in our approach to our politics. We shouldn't have that name. Hallelujah, I and, say. And you know, that, I mean, <laughs> I, I, it, it is a wonderful. It's a, it's a wonderful way to approach politics, and, and, it is, but and you we're do not have getting to, that. I, I understand what you're saying. Yeah, you have to convince saying, people of it, though. But but my point is that the, the more we roll to the right, or the more we roll to anti helping anybody, um, the less able anybody is mm. to convince anyone. Mm. I mean, it, it's lazy politics for for the government to just fall upon this this rhetoric. It is, but we we had a sort of example of this recently when there was talk about uh, cutting Australia's refugee intake. And of course, people like uh, that One Nation types, you know, they, they, their instinct is to embrace that. And who was it who came out and sort of most robustly defended our high immigration intake? It was Treasury. Because Treasury said, "Hang on, mm. this is the this is the foundation mm. of our growth. We're in 27 years of unbroken growth, while the rest of the world mm. has gone through the GFC." But this and is the cognitive dissonance of our, it of is. our politics. It isn't is. It? it is, and I suppose what I'm saying there is the arguments are there. As Merkel had arguments to make, I think legitimate arguments to make about um, you know v- villages in Germany that literally had no young people living in mm. them that were actually dying because so many people had left, and there was a good argument for these these towns and regions to be repopulated by migration, helping out people who desperately needed refuge, somewhere to live and somewhere to rebuild their lives. So I suppose if you make those arguments and you can do it properly, you can build the political legitimacy, but you you cannot, I guess is what I'm hammering this theme, but you cannot ignore that. You do have no. to bring the popula- your population with you. No, I totally agree with you in terms of that very quickly because uh, we cannot only have uh, uh, the rhetoric of compassion, but it has to be actually supported yeah, the by very yeah. the architecture of it because that's where we have seen some of the big gaps. So here, one thing where uh, in where what's important for us to understand that research-led policy and research-led evidence is very very important. We can talk about how these are constructed. We can also think about how we can strengthen institutions to support um, some of these policies. So I wanted to go from that issue of compassion that you're raising to a very topical debate at the moment in Australia around the Medivac bill. And of course, it would be remiss of us not to ask you your thoughts on this. It's it's a hot topic at the moment. So last week, the parliament passed that bill, making it possible for doctors to recommend a transfer of sick refugees from Manus Island on Nauru to Australia for treatment. But then the story continued. The the Home uh, Home Affairs clarified yesterday that sick refugees would not be taken to the mainland but to Christmas Island. And, of course, we've seen those debates all over the the, the media today Um, and that the only way they would come to Australia is if there was specialised treatment that was required. Meanwhile, the government of Nauru um, has passed laws banning medical transfers based on telehealth assessments. So what do we make all of this? Bina, I'll come to you first. Do you think this broadly is a win for refugees to see a bill of this kind being passed? What do you make of it, having just come back to Australia? Okay, uh, very uh, simply put, I'll be very brief here. Um, I see that uh, I've I've been reading in the newspapers that uh, refugees have been also mentioning that they don't see these only uh, while it's uh, welcoming, but they also don't see uh, this Medvac bill as something it's going to change uh, 
uh, their um, their fate and what's happening uh, to them at the moment because it's not only about the bill but also about the whole way care is understood um, and taken up. So I think uh, we see an issue there, but I'll pass it over to colleagues here who are more familiar with Australian policy. So, Marianne, what, what um, are your thoughts yeah. on okay. the I spend a lot of, playing out? I spent a lot of time helping people find the bill because hip, you know, the public keep calling it the Medibank bill and it was an amendment of a different one. So I've followed all these changes going through since last year. But um, it's about time. I mean, it's been years. We've had so many reports on what's going wrong. We've had so many court challenges. In, you know, We've had um, a policy, the Nauru government's policy now, where you have to go through through their medical team to get you know, permission to leave. That was an old one. They already had that. They took it away again when they had a legal challenge for a woman who wanted to have an abortion and um, the Nauru government was stopping her coming to Australia because they don't believe in abortion. So, I mean, we, we, we're sort of going backwards with that step. Um, the This is the parliament's will. The parliament says it should happen and the government is is bypassing their will by opening Christmas Island and saying people have to go there. What we're going to see then is more court challenges while we fight for the people to leave Christmas Island to get to Melbourne or somewhere where there's better treatment. Now, there's been cases where Melbourne's the only hospital that can deal with with extreme um, things that are Millions of people have lost weight with personalised plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Happening extreme mental issues or extreme things that, uh, that occur gynecologically with female genital mutilation, those sort of things, you have to go to Melbourne. That's where the specialists are. So this is bypassing Parliament's will. And, it, it, you know, it, they've been dragged kicking and screaming to face what they're doing to people who are sick. Um, and they've thrown everything up in the air. They've thrown up nonsense about people who are pedophiles, nonsense about Section 501 and being, you know, charged uh, 12 months in jail and all those sort of things and just because they've been drag kicking and screaming by the parliament. Now, the last thing I want to say is I think I think the Australian people, even with the polls dipping a bit in Labor, I think the Australian people are getting sick and tired of hearing of the damage we're doing to people on Nauru. They're getting sick and tired of it. And this happened last time with, with, with uh, when Vanstone, you know, closed it all down with Howard's. It took seven years before the Australian public went, that's enough, we're sick of it. And I think that's happening again. Do you think... Mark, I, I want to pick up on uh, this idea of bypassing Parliament's intentions. On There was a tweet on Monday from one of the Green senators who said, the government plans to send sick refugees and people seeking asylum to Christmas Island. This is utter bastardry and a denial of the Parliament's intentions. What do you think about that? Well, I think the latter, latter part of it is probably right. It does appear to be a frustration of the Parliament's intentions. It's a pretty extraordinary situation, though, that we see here where we've got the Parliament actually making law 
um, in in, uh, in in opposition effectively to the government of the day. I mean, the whole definition of a government is that you control the House of Representatives, and the House of Representatives passed a law that the government's not happy with. So you can understand why there's a lot of sort of umbrage there. But um, the the real issue here is the politicisation of. Uh, refugees once again and of asylum seekers of boats you know this whole sort of axis uh, excuse me uh, just banged the microphone um uh, so yeah the politicization of this is really you know red hot at the moment and look as much as the government says it's outraged the truth is it's actually delighted that uh, it, that bill shorten and labor have uh in some ways uh, the, the way the government's looking at it have revealed their intentions to weaken australia's borders and we hear this term weaken all the time it's being used a lot in fact the narrative is running that if Bill Shorten's that beholden to the left when he's in opposition that he's prepared to weaken Australia's border protection laws Mm -hmm. when he's in opposition, imagine how far he'll retreat when he's in government. And they, you know, the coalition wants to point to to Labor's record of, you know, 52,000 arrivals during uh, the time that Labor was in office last time and uh, what was it, 1,200 deaths at sea uh, estimated. Um, So, you know, these are are difficult issues and Labor does have a very patchy record to defend here. Uh, But um, the the real point of this whole debate and the way it's flared up at the moment is politics. We're, 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 you know, right right up against an election, the government's behind in the polls and suddenly there's an there's a lever it can pull which but who knows could rescue lever the government. So many times do you think the Australian people are sick of this lever? Well, I mean, there's a lot of people who think they are and that is the calculation that Labor politicians have made. And the people I spoke to last week when this first was being discussed uh, were saying, you know, we are not the country we were in 2001 when the you know this Tampa thing happened. Uh, people are now the boats have been stopped for a long time, so the urgency has come out of the issue. Uh, you know, the anxiety about sort of being swamped or whatever it was has come out of it, and that Australians are more compassionate now. I, I think the jury's out on that. I mean, the, the last poll, we've only seen one poll since this parliamentary vote, and it was quite worrying for Labor. I mean, it suddenly showed, after nearly three years of a consistent, significant lead in the polls, it suddenly showed them tightening, uh, this was the nine Ipsos poll on Monday, to 49.51 in Labor's favour. But, you know, as, as, uh, as I've noted before, Paul Keating used to always say, you could go into an election on 49.51 and still hope to win if you campaign well. So the government feels like it's back in the game on the strength of this. We'll see whether that's the case with successive polls. This could be an outlier, but um, there's no doubt that this is just so such a, a you know, it's, a, so a, it's a heavily politicised issue. Uh, as I've said before, facts are um, sort of secondary to the politics. Yes, and in terms of also that, uh, going back to the Medvac bill, bill, one important thing that we often forget that this is only talking about the current uh, uh, residents of the, I mean, currently those who on, are on Madison, in the, the Nauru, Madison, yeah. so 1,200 people. So it's like actually, yeah, 1,200 people effectively, not more than that. And minister has his discretion as well. Uh, and 400, 400 people, a um, bit more than 400 people have been brought to Australia yeah. already by the government. And I think another five or 600 on top of that uh, mm-hmm. of family members related to those people. The government's argument is that once they're in the mainland, they can use the Australian courts to petition to stay, you know, to get injunctions and so forth and to stay in Australia. And that therefore the ministers lost the discretion to stop people who are, you know, going to do that, particularly if they have, you know, character issues and the like. And there's no doubt that that, that particular power, singular power of the minister has been attenuated by this this change. I mean, there is a power now that is uh, under the law that is um, delegated to doctors 
uh, that that had been in the sole uh, custody of the of the minister, and that's what the government is arguing is a weakening of the board. Ministers. Ministers, three of them are exercising ministerial discretion at the moment. Right. Nobody knows how, but three are. <laughs> Well, it will be very interesting to see how the politics of all this plays out in an election year. But I want to turn our attention now to this idea of offshore processing and whether it actually works as a deterrent. Um, as we previously mentioned, the Australian government has a long history of using offshore detention. Um, a Guardian Essential poll in October last year showed that 43% of Australians were opposed to the idea of keeping asylum seekers and refugees on Nauru indefinitely, whereas 35% were in support. Now, in organising these podcasts, we reach out to our audience and ask them for questions that they would like to put to the panel. And we had a question from uh, Mark Zanker. Mark has actually been fantastically active in the organisation and uh, contributing to this podcast. So I'd like to thank Mark personally. But the question from Mark is, what is the cost to taxpayers of these policies and what is the expected benefit? The Christmas Island facility cost $500 million to construct but has been mothballed until it was politically convenient to reopen it. Is this good public policy? Do people really think that the outcome of all this is beneficial to the broader community and if so, how? I wonder, Marianne, if we can start with you. Okay, well, um, I haven't done all the figures from 2001. <laughs> and uh, the Parliamentary Library's got really good, it, it, the public can access it, really good reports on how much money over the years. So they look at the budget and they check how much money's been going. So I had a quick look and in 2016, 2017, it cost, cost $1.1 billion. Um, 2018, 19 estimates from August, September last year, it was about 432 million. So we sort of had, um, each time they budget, they then have to go and get more because they're, they're running over the costs of what it is. But hidden in there are other things like the aid they give to Nauru and, and uh, Papua New Guinea to support this and 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 uh, the ocean, uh, what's called the oceanic, the boats that go out and stop other boats and the towbacks. And so there's all these Ocean's hidden costs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's sort of OSB, hidden costs yeah. with it. So um, that's sort of what I could find. But it is, it is you know, billions now um, since it all started. So whether this is a good expenditure of money, considering it's 1,200 people left there, and at the peak I think it was only a bit over 2,000 um, compared to, you know, what we're dealing with here in Australia for the 30,000 people that are sort of in Australia. Um, it seems like a nonsense. We've got, we've got some, some of the refugees in Australia, I think a great majority are already working, studying, contributing, paying tax when they buy, you know, when they buy anything. They're becoming, you know, uh, self-fulfilling almost citizens of Australia. They're, they're, they're living their lives here. We've, we've dumped these other people offshore as a, a message. Yeah, well, that's the trouble. Actually, I, I agree. I think, this, I think it's a really, really worrying aspect to this as a, as a matter of public policy, and that is the unspoken truth that keeping those people there is part of the policy. I mean, yes, the government does have a record to talk about when it's stopped boats coming in and therefore has stopped deaths at sea, has stopped you know being a, an inducement for people to, to, uh, to take that risk. Yes, there's a very strong humanitarian basis to that argument. And stopping people from dying is an important thing and the government does deserve credit for that. And to that extent, uh, you can understand why there's bipartisanship on the policy yes. um, because it's an outrageous situation if you have large numbers of people perishing at sea. Um, but... 
The government has been far too slow in moving the people who have been caught in the hinge of that policy change and who have been languishing in these tropical outposts for a long time now, for six, five and six years. Mm. Uh, and that's why we get this kind of breakdown of policy, a breakdown of bipartisanship now where the parliament is actually dictating to the government uh, on, on ways of trying to humanise this policy. Because, because, as you touched on before, Marion, the, the Australian people uh, cannot abide indefinite detention of people who've committed no crime. They can't abide it. Now, whether they will, how that will uh, uh, come up against any rising anxiety about boats and so forth in this election period, I guess we're about to find out. But I think that's why uh, Labor felt emboldened to move here. Um, and I think it's why the government is, uh, ha, you know, has a very difficult sort of argument to defend on this level. And that is that it seems like these people being on, on these islands is part of the deterrence. The, the, the alternative, them being resettled elsewhere, and we know some have been and are in the process of being resettled to the US, but the alternative of these places being completely emptied out means there is no disincentive anymore. No, I mean it's a, it's a terrible truth and, in, and that's at the heart argument of this policy. Is, you know, we can't bring them here to get help in, in a hospital. Yeah, because that'll bring the people smugglers because, bring because, more. Because that nonsense. gives them a message <laughs> that they can say, "Yes, you can get on a boat and, and you can come sick. into Australia, and if you can make it to Manus Island, you only have to languish there for five or six years mm. and come close to death, and then you might actually be able to come to Australia." I mean, that's the sort of uh, you know when you break it down, that's the ludicrousness of this policy, and uh, it's um, when you when you consider that uh, Australia has uh, simply ignored, passed up, however you want to describe it, the offer from New Zealand to take 150 of these people each year for the last several years, which would have gone, gone a long way to, <laughs> uh, you know, reducing this population to zero, especially along with the uh, with the US deal. Uh, it is uh, it is quite worrying, and it does rather suggest that the people uh, being there is part of the mm. disincentive. And the other issue in terms of uh, what you're talking about, Mark, about policies is actually there's also implementation gaps. Sometimes policies. Uh, uh, there's a different rhetoric about policy, but we have actually, there are laws and regulations, but we see huge implementation gap. One example I'll give you globally, and what we also see, we have seen in Nauru and Manus Island, is that reception facilities are they're very uncomfortable spaces. You just it, the idea is that you're a refugee. You're a refugee. Um, we are going to process your application, but no way we are going to make it easy. Mm. So mm. everything from the uh, when you enter a facility and you leave it, you really feel that sense of helplessness. So we also have seen in as in many other countries, also in Australia, that this high uh, there's there's mental health issues as well, serious mental health issues and. Even uh, when UNHCR have processed applications, they are actually sitting there waiting to go. It, this has happened uh, with those who have been granted their cases for the U.S. So we do see a problem as well that we're talking about policies, we're talking about economic costs. And because we understand um, economy as one of the main drivers, but we're no, not talking about well-being as a factor of how we actually think about and create different ways of uh, Thinking about policies as well. I think that's Sorry, a very, I think that's a very important point. We have been talking about policies. Yeah. We have been talking about you know the sort of global issues, and we've been talking about the economic costs. But there's a very human cost, isn't there? And Marion, you've done some work working with refugees in the community. What's life like at the kind of pointy end of some of these uh, policies that we've talked about today? Yeah, well, I've been to Nauru twice, but not in the recent iteration. 
So, you know, it was bad then. Um, I can remember coming home from Nauru the second time and going to Baxter Detention Centre at that point and thinking, oh, my God, if we get them off Nauru, they've got to come here. So in some ways, sometimes our detention centres here are just as cruel. Um, they're not remote, but they're – well, Baxter was pretty remote, but they can be just as cruel and jail-like. I've worked with... Uh, oh, they're run by some of the same companies. Uh, that yeah, are, you yeah. Know, I mean, I've worked with people going into jails uh, with yep. immigration issues and it's easier to go and see someone in jail mm -hmm. as, a, as a migration agent than it is to get into a detention centre. But with the, refu the refugees here, I've worked with the unaccompanied minors. Um, they, they suffer from... Even here, they're suffering from mental health issues because of the trauma they endured on the, you know, before they left, on the way you know, when they got here. And, and sometimes you read the thing and you think, you can read their cases under FOI and you can see they were, they were in Tasmania, they went to ask for a jumper and were told, no, your jumper's good enough, go away, you can't be cold. And you think, these, these guys came from Myanmar. You know, they're cold in Tasmania. Mm. And you think, gee, that's cruel, but it's not as cruel as what we're doing on Nauru and Manus and to other people. So, you know, just as a, a human being, denying somebody a jumper or the right size shoes seems cruel, let alone the mental health that they're suffering on Nauru and Manus. Now, we've got to remember, Nauru, they lived in those tents for five years or six years. The tents only came down when the Pacific um, Forum was held last year. They pulled all the tents down and made structures so that the rest of the community wouldn't see the atrocious accommodation Australia was providing for people. You know, so we are just cruel. They're cruel policies. They're not just processing offshore. They're not just, they're cruel as a deterrent on purpose. So the, for the people here, uh, they're struggling to find jobs. They're struggling to find, um, they're struggling with English. They're struggling to find jobs. They're struggling to fit into that region, the Chev visa that requires them to work or study in a region. Once they meet those things, then they will struggle to get through a tiny little gap of, of, you know, nine visa categories they might be able to apply for to stay permanently. So they are facing up to 10 years before their, you know, permanent mm. residence here. And a huge issue there actually also in camps in terms of protracted uh, uh, refugee situation is that when applications are processed, it's actually the cream of the refugee population that are taken away. Yes. The most educated, the nurses, the doctors and others. And then the refugee population who are there basically without any support from the community. So community gets fragmented over and over and over mm, again. That's a really interesting each point. Each decision. Yeah. So and we are actually not under understanding this in, in a holistic way. Uh, at one level, obviously, it's individual applications about what it does to the community. And That's we right, see that yeah. impact not only in Australia, but we see that impact globally and also when with those who are resettled. So, yeah. It's and when the issue. people are resettled here, the governments, I don't know, they've, they've sort of yeah. very big on their community support program. It's, you know, where yeah, the Australia community can sponsor mm. a refugee to come to Australia. Now, I, I was in a Senate committee room listening to a briefing about this. And I couldn't tell the Labor Party from the Liberal Party or the coalition senators. I couldn't tell who was talking because under that community settlement support scheme that, that you're meant to, the community, so, you know, a religious community or an ethnic community can support a family or a person to come, that person has to be job ready. So you're talking about a refugee that's job ready and the visa fee for that refugee is $16,000. So it is the next highest visa fee. The next highest one, the one next, the highest one is a parent visa, and then we've got this community-supported sixteen. But on top of the sixteen thousand dollars visa fee, you've got to pay 
a, a specific group that's 10 named, I think, like IOM, it comes to close to um, $30,000, dollars $50,000 by the time you've paid for that person who's job-ready refugee to come to Australia with community support. Because I hear the, the, the detail of some of these policies. What always strikes me is the gap between the sort of ideas Australia like Australians like to pride themselves with around a fair go and so on and just the complete lack and, of empathy mm. and lack of support that underpins some of these policies. But let me, let me finish our conversation by looking forward and maybe trying to look forward positively. Um, just to ask each of you in turn, if you could give one piece of advice to the Australian government on how to make better refugee policies, what would that be? Bina, maybe we can start with you from the, kind of the, the international perspective that you've just come from. One um, piece of advice. <laughs> yes, so one piece of advice, I think, in terms of policies to actually uh, what we also see all the policy briefs, they uh, heavily focus on the economic drivers, push and pull factors. They talk about, they heavily actually rely on quantitative analysis of how we talk about refugees and migrants and IDPs and stateless people. Um, but that then we have to shift the narrative to think about actually qualitative research, to think about how actually good positive stories have also changed the way Australian society have developed, what it means to be part of a the Australian society and the community and how we can actually be part of this global compassionate migration and refugee regime. I would say dial it down, stop playing politics with this issue uh, and start start making policy that actually works. I mean, some policy has worked. I think that has to be conceded. But there have been, as we've just been discussing, some horrible anti-human, cruel aspects of this policy. They need to be resolved. The people who are languishing on these islands need to be resettled and they need to res be, be, be resettled in a human timescale, which is i.e. now. And uh, um, if, if the politics could be taken out of this, uh, then I think we'd go a long way towards uh, looking at this in a more balanced manner and perhaps coming up with uh, a solution rather than just status quo, which is unacceptable. Well, I think I combine both. So think like a global citizen. You know, Australia isn't just an entity, an island entity alone. It, it's suffering everything that the rest of the world is, is coping with and probably in huger numbers than we ever have. And reopen processing from Indonesia. Start looking to our closest neighbours and thinking if people get there to claim asylum, we should be, we should be taking them from there um, and not just shutting that gate down. So I agree with you. I think turnbacks, as much as I don't like them, I think they're probably one part of the policy that works to save lives. But if you're going to turn them back to New Zealand, then let's start processing them from New Zealand so they don't get on a boat in the first place. From Indonesia, you mean? From Indi yes, yeah. sorry. Yeah. Mm. Sorry. Oh, that's funny, isn't it? Let's turn them back to New Zealand. I'll be happier <laughs> there. <laughs> We'd all be happier there, probably. <laughs> so, so maybe a, a cry out for some human compassion and common decency underpinning policies and debates around this. That's right. Thank you all for a fantastic discussion. Um, Marianne Dickey, Mark Kenny, Bina da Costa, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. So thanks once again to our guests for a really fascinating discussion today. I I really enjoyed it. I got a lot out of it. And I am really keen to hear what you thought of it, listeners. You can get in contact with us on email, where we're at podcast at policyforum.net. You can hit us up on Twitter, where we're at Apps Policy Forum, or best option of all, join our Facebook 
Pod group. We are Policy Forum Pod on Facebook, and you can talk to uh, some of the presenters there and talk to some of your fellow listeners. Now, uh, I'm delighted to say that we've still got Marianne Dickey with us. Thank you for stay, sticking around for the outro, Marianne. No, this will be interesting. So at the end of each week's podcast, I'm saying it's as much for your benefit, Marion, as for the listeners, we go over some of the questions and comments and suggestions that we've had over the last week, either through our website, policyforum.net, or or some of our social media channels. And the first one I want to talk about is last week's podcast, which was uh, called A War on Drugs or A War on Drug Users. And it had John Coyne from Aspie, Helen Keane, and Jason Payne. It was a fantastic discussion. If you haven't listened to it, I would heartily recommend you to do so. And in the pod, the three experts discussed whether Australia has its policy settings right when it comes to regulating uh, illicit drugs and whether it's time to change direction and find a way to decriminalise or even legalise certain types of drugs. And there was a comment from at Buddha Guts on Twitter. What a great name. And at Buddha Guts says, is there any evidence from any time in history that shows prohibition works. Sharon, I'm looking to you, picking your historical brain, has prohibition ever worked? Prohibition of substances? No, I don't think so. I'm desperately kind of drawing back into my memory. And the famous one, of course, is alcohol in the United States, which categorically failed um, or uncategorically failed. Um, no, it's, it's very hard to think of examples of prohibition working. I mean, that doesn't mean that we shouldn't regulate, of course. I mean, there are certain substances that really I don't think many people would want freely available or perhaps being promoted. But prohibition as a blunt tool, no, I don't think there's any evidence that it's been particularly successful. But hopefully some of our listeners will identify some examples if they're out there and we, correct me. We have this very kind of law and order approach to tackling illicit drugs. But in other countries around the world, Portugal, for example, they've started treating drug use as a health issue. What's your take on all of this, Marion? I think it depends on the drugs, actually. <laughs> it depends on what we're talking about. So I didn't listen to the podcast. I'm a bit behind. Um, but if you're talking about, uh, the, you know, the sort of party drugs we're seeing killing people um, in concerts and those big music gatherings they're going to, I mean, I think they're incredibly worrying because that's a part of education that people need to know what they're taking. And, and clearly they're illicit drugs, they're mixed up and they don't really know what they're, they're taking at the time. So it can result in, um, in terrible, terrible things happening. I'm just talking about drugs like, pain medication, then I think we've sort of overreacted on a lot of the, uh, a lot of the issues with codeine. So I think doctors were over-prescribing codeine and then people weren't understanding what they were taking there, ending in, you know, death from codeine overdose. So I don't really know. Um, it depends on what we're talking about. Of course, you mentioned uh, sort of deaths at music festivals and one of the policy issues that policymakers have really struggled to kind of get to grips with is, is the concept of introducing pill testing at music festivals, which, you know, by some arguments might make, uh, might lessen harm for people who do take illicit, illicit drugs at music festivals. Do you think introducing pill testing might be something I think it's that... necessary, at least that you'd know what you were taking. I mean, um, studies have shown that people who have pill testing, even even if, if they find it's, it's okay, it's what they thought it was, 
inevitably uh, some people just throw it away and don't take it because the reality of what they're taking hits them after the pill testing. So I think it's it's really necessary we embrace that. I mean, I personally have experience of a, uh, a close relative dying from taking the wrong drugs. So, so I'm a bit um, connected to this sort of issue. And I think if you knew exactly what you were taking, then you wouldn't take it in the first place, we would hope. And I don't think pill testing is necessarily the same as endorsement of no. using a drug. And I think that's where the confusion becomes when the pill testing um, is opposed, that you know, we're somehow saying it's okay. It's like having Whereas a safe injecting room. You're not, you're not they're, saying they're it's okay issues. to be a heroin that's addict. Right. You're, you're enabling someone to do something they're going to do anyway safely. Yes, yes. And it can be used as you say, Marion, as, as a, a, also as an avenue for education. Mm. So there are a, a more sophisticated ways of thinking about it than thinking the pill testing is going to say that it's okay, but it may well keep people alive. And if it keeps one more young person alive, that's a good thing. It does sound like both of you are making a call for common sense in our policy. Well, you know, good Did, on you. Didn't I say <laughs> earlier, sort of decent common decency and humanity? <laughs> That's it. So, without, without having a medical analysis, which neither of us can do. Indeed. <laughs> okay, the second one I want to have to talk about is, a, is an article that was published on Policy Forum. It was called Breaking the Law for National Security's Sake. And it looked at the proposal to help the government strip people of their citizenship on national security grounds and argue that this runs the risk of potentially leaving people stateless. Now, we've seen this issue play out with the Neil Prakash case here in Australia. And in fact, this week as well, we've also seen it play out in the UK with the case of Shamima Begum, the British teenager who went to Syria to join Islamic State. And we had a comment from at Azor on Twitter who says, the person is a dual citizen of another country and poses a national security threat, why not? Why not strip them of their citizenship? What do you think about that, Sharon? Well, I think there are there are lots of issues underpinning this. I mean, in uh, Shamima Begum's case, as I understand it, she is not a dual citizen. She's only a British, British citizen. Um, and I think... I think, in- I think actually the uh, British government are arguing that she has a right to Bangladeshi nationality. <laughs> Yes, I think that's right. Even but though I, she's never been I, to Bangladesh. And I life. don't think she at least holds Bangladeshi citizenship at the moment. Um, in some ways, I think if a, if, if a person has, has lived in a country for all of their life, the, the dual citizenship issue is some in some ways to me a bit of a furphy um, because it is just sort of abrogating responsibility for what is a really difficult issue. And I do think if people, particularly like Neil Prakesh, there's you know, a lot of evidence of the, the violence that he committed, the terrible crimes that he committed. And it's my view that people who um, commit those kinds of crimes must be held account for them. But I do think that, that the countries of which people have citizenship also have a responsibility in a global world um, to ensure that people are held account for their actions. It is an abrogation of responsibility, I think, to say, well, we're just going to wash our hands of it and someone else can deal with the problem. Um, and particularly when that problem is going to be dealt with most likely um, by countries that are extremely fragile, that are barely, barely holding on to the rule of law, that are barely functioning. Um, I think this is where 
countries like Australia and the UK do need to step in and take responsibility. Oh, it's, it's incredibly problematic. And, and with this government we've seen, with this minister, with Minister Dutton, we've seen that he's willing to just breach anything, any international law he can to get his way. So um, leaving people stateless is something he wouldn't even hesitate to do. Now, you'd think with the dual citizenship issue that all the parliamentarians faced, they'd see how easy it is to not know you're a dual citizen, how easy it is to fall into that trap, how easy it is for the government now, of course, like you know, in the case of Bangladesh, to claim that you have a right to go and access that citizenship. Um, it, it's inc- incredibly flawed and and fraught for people who are facing their, getting their citizenship cancelled. Um, so the reasons reasons behind, you know, for the terrorist reasons, one reason, but they're doing it, he's, he's pushing to do it even further with people on other grounds. So I think once you cross this threshold... It'll just get worse for people. You think it's a bit of a power grab? <laughs> it's a huge power grab. It's a huge power grab because he it, it comes back almost to, you know, we will decide to, who comes to this country. It's now we will decide who remains in this country with Minister Dutton. I mean, he's cancelled many people's right to stay here. And, um, and once he can just start doing that with dual citizenship, then, you know, it's even worse. He can already do it on certain grounds. So we, we began <clears throat> this conversation today, and Marion, this was before you were involved, sort of talking a little bit about issues of, of accountability, of, of government accountability, um, and where those avenues lie. And I think this is an issue with, with Minister Dutton. There's mm. really no accountability for some of those very ad hoc decisions that impact dramatically on no, people's No, he just lives. hides behind ministerial discretion and then he just makes these decisions and that and that's it. You know, they're, they're, because they're, 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 some of these discretions are non-reviewable and non-delegable and et cetera, you know, he, he, he just can get away with it until it's challenged in the courts and then inevitably um, either wins or fails or moves, moves to increase the legislation to get his way. So thanks again, Azor, for that comment. And in fact, thanks to Buddha Guts for his uh, previous comment. Um, the final thing I want to touch on is uh, we're still getting your our listeners' suggestions for future pods. And I'm loving some of the stuff that's coming through, some of the ideas that's coming through. It really helps us in our editorial process and our planning. So please do keep them coming in because we're super keen to get your thoughts on the topics that you would like to see uh, covered on the podcast. Uh, and in our Facebook group, Mark, again, Mark Sanka, he's been, like I said, he's been, had a very busy week. He says, I would uh, like to see something about the armaments industry in Australia and the extent to which we are supporting the Saudis in this respect and how we reconcile that support with our belief in human rights and our generally anti-Muslim policies. Sharon, what do you make of that? Well, I think it would be a really interesting discussion. It would be a very wide-ranging discussion. I think there are lots of threads there. I think I think, Martin, I would pull this apart because I can see three really interesting future podcasts in this. One around the armaments industry in Australia. I'd like to see us do a podcast around um, Saudi Arabia, but I would really like us to talk about Saudi influence in Muslim countries uh, globally, you know, across and, and across our region particularly, and um, the influence of Wahhabism and so on. So I would pull that out. And Mark says, you know, how do we reconcile these things with our belief in human rights? I think there's a debate to be had 
what is, do we believe in human rights? Where are human rights in the Australian discourse today? I would like to think that, yes, we do have a belief in human rights, but I look at some of our policies around asylum seekers. I look at the treatment of um, people who are unemployed or living in poverty, look at the situation of Indigenous people in Australia. And boy, I, I think that's something to tease out in a podcast. Where do human rights stand in, in contemporary Australia? Mm. Yeah, it's brilliant. Yeah, I think all three would be really good. And I think Australians would be really surprised that we have an armaments industry, you know, that we actually sell arms to anybody. Yes, so absolutely. It, it's really important to um, flush that out. Mm. I feel like we've talked a lot today about the sort of dissonance, basically, between, you know, how we see ourselves in Australia and what we think that our policy is doing and, in actual fact, what it is doing yes. around the world. Mm. And I think, you know, for, for our listeners, this is where coming into an election campaign, I think we need to hold a mirror up to ourselves and to our politicians. And so what is it that we do really stand for? And what are we debating? What are we voting for? That's right. So thank you so much again for that suggestion, Mark. That's an excellent one. And a big thank you to everybody who has commented, uh, who has left questions for us. And a reminder, please do keep sending them in. That includes those suggestions for future episodes of the podcast. You can reach us on Twitter, where we're Apps Policy Forum. We are Policy Forum Pod on Facebook, or you can just drop us a line, podcast at policyforum.net. And if you enjoyed today's episode, then perhaps you might want to leave us a quick review on iTunes. It'll only take you 30 seconds or so. All you need to do is look for that fifth star. Give it a click. Uh, that'll be a huge help to us in getting the word out about this podcast. We'll be back next week with another Policy Forum pod. But until then, from me, Martin Pierce, cheerio. And from me, Sharon Bessel, bye-bye for now. And Marianne Dickey, thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. Thanks, everyone. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.